everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Unjustly. My name is Sandy and this is my co-host Stephanie. Hi everyone. So before we get started, just as a FYI, uh, next door they're having a really <laughs> nice um, poker party mm-hmm. and we do have those uh, noise canceling foam things up, but I don't know if there'll be any match for mm-hmm. the grand poker night that's going on just a few feet away. <laughs> yep. We got, um, we have new neighbors. They upgraded. They have a poker table and some nice yeah. chairs, but it, it looked I'm... like a whole nice setup. So. Yeah. Yep. So if you hear their funness going on over there, don't judge us. We are doing our best. (laughs) So we have made it to the end of February. And before we close out the month, I wanted to do a special episode for Black History Month. Yay. So my oldest daughter is currently doing distance learning, and I've been watching what they've been teaching for Black History Month. And I'd say it's pretty much exactly the same experience I had in school as Mm -hmm. well, um, which is learning about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad, and how Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat and move to the back of the bus. And that's kind of where it ends for most kids. As I got older, our teachers incorporated more activists like Malcolm X, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, Frederick Douglass, and Nelson Mandela. But again, that's usually where our lesson of Black history ended. Mm-hmm. Would you say yours was about the same experience? Same exact thing. Mm-hmm. So when I was in college, I had to choose two history-type general ed classes, and most of the American history and European history classes were filled up pretty fast. But I chose to take African-American history for both of my classes, and to say that it was an eye-opener is definitely an understatement. I quickly realized that taking a whole year of African-American history wasn't even enough to scratch the Mm -hmm. surface of what I missed in American history classes growing up. And that seems to be the debate currently, right? Um, That teaching black history should be redundant because African-American history is in actuality regular American history. Mm -hmm. And a huge part of American history at that. The problem is that textbook American history has been historically whitewashed and has omitted a lot of the ugly and shameful events that are often ignored and forgotten. So when people are upset over statues of slave owners being taken down, saying that you are erasing history, I'd argue to say that the full history was already erased when those statues were put up in the first place. Right. And by understanding black history, especially by those of us who are not black, we can understand why and how systemic racism still exists and how we can change for equality. So with this episode, I'm going to cover the history of how Black History Month was created. I'll explore a few facts in history that have been slightly whitewashed or skewed, and then I'll cover some accomplishments and contributions that black people have made to our country that haven't gotten as much recognition. So I got a lot of sources, so just bear with me as I go through this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I got my sources from a website called Association for the Study of African American Life and History, an article in History.com about Black History Month, multiple articles in Reader's Digest by Jeremy Helliger, the HQUDC.org website, an article in Salon.com by Callie Holloway, Archive.org, Wikipedia, an article in FacingSouth.org by Greg Huffman, CBS News, Seven Hidden Figures from Black History, an article in Oprah Magazine by Michelle Derisaw, and an article in thinkgrowth.org by Pamela Rosario Perez. So the history of Black History Month. 
So I never knew the exact origins of Black History Month. That was never really talked about in my school. I guess I always assumed that it just came about after the civil rights movement, but that is not the case. Did you know about how it was created? Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm going to say no, but I might remember. Once I start saying yeah. Once I started looking into it, I remember the name, um, but I I still didn't know the history of everything. So Black History Month was created by Carter G. Woodson, who is now referred to as the father of Black history. Woodson was the son of former enslaved parents. After graduating college, he became a teacher and a school administrator. Eventually, Woodson would become the second African-American after W.E.B. Du Bois to obtain a Ph.D. degree from Harvard University. He would then build his career at Howard University, a historically black university, where he eventually served as the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences. In 1915, during a national celebration of the 50th anniversary of emancipation, Woodson contributed a display of black history to the exhibit. Thousands traveled from all over to participate in the three-week celebration. This inspired Woodson to want to form an organization to promote the scientific study of black life and history. And a few months later, Woodson, along with a few other colleagues, established the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, or for short, ASNLH. Within a year, Woodson and other black intellectuals would publish uh, research in the Journal of Negro History. Woodson began encouraging educators and black civic organizations to celebrate the achievements of black people in history and eventually reached out to the fraternity he graduated from, Omega Sci Fi. The fraternity responded by creating the first Negro Achievement Week at their college. Woodson spoke to an audience of college students and said, We're going back to that beautiful history and it is going to inspire us to greater achievements. In February 1926, Woodson finally sent a press release announcing the creation of Negro History Week. Woodson chose February because two important birthdays were already being celebrated that correlated with Black history and that was of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. Woodson believed that if he advertised Negro History Week as an extension of education during these two birthdays that were already observed, then he would have a better chance of the idea being widely accepted. And he was right. One thing he did not like, though, is the celebration of just a few great men because Woodson believed that history was built by many people, and he didn't want those contributions erased. Soon, black history clubs sprang up all over the country and teachers demanded materials to teach their students while progressive whites endorsed these efforts. So Woodson and his association created teaching materials filled with pictures, lesson plans, plays for historical performances, and posters. With the popularity of Black History Week growing, Woodson pushed to expand the studies longer than just a week because it was too short of a time frame to cram all the important events and people that contributed to American civilization. And in the 1960s, this idea became more accepted. Although some teachers had to hide their Black History material to not draw attention from higher-ups, in the South, the Freedom Schools incorporated Black History into the curriculum to advance social change. This movement played a larger effort to transform race relations. Soon, the week-long celebration turned into an entire month of studies with more inclusion of Black history throughout the school year's curriculum in many schools and colleges. Finally, on the 50th anniversary of the first Negro Week history in 1976, Woodson's Association officially announced the move from a week-long celebration to the entire month of February. 
President Gerald Ford officially recognized Black History Month in the U.S., calling upon the public to, quote, seize the opportunity to honor the two often neglected accomplishments of Black Americans in every area of endeavor throughout our history. And it has been endorsed by every single president since then. So that's the history of how Black History Month came Mm -hmm. about. I didn't know any of that. (laughs) So next little history lesson. Let's talk about some injustices because it wouldn't be unjustly podcast if we didn't talk about some frustrating things. So I personally think it's been a huge injustice that the education system, especially with the way history was written in particular, has been drastically manipulated to fit a certain narrative. And in return, it has left a country uneducated in real American history and has contributed to racism and ignorance towards the injustices minorities in this country have faced. And this goes for all minorities, not just black people, every single minority, Asians, Latinx, like it's been an issue, Native Americans, every indigenous person, it seems like all the history books have been very sugarcoated. And I don't think any of us really have learned the true facts of history in school. Mm -hmm. And those of us that have learned more, it's because we've either done our own research as an adult or, you know, taken certain college classes that were more open to being truthful. Mm -hmm. Um, But how can we learn from our past mistakes so that it doesn't repeat itself or fight for change if we've never been taught them in the first place? Um, So here's the quote that I found in the Reader's Digest regarding the teachings of our history. It says, For years, U.S. schools have taught a whitewashed version of history, one in which white cowboys are the heroes, Indians are the villains, and slavery is a minor blemish rather than a massive permanent scar. Most Americans are largely uninformed of our nation's history of white supremacy and racial terror. So part of me thinks this is kind of cool, but another part of me is kind of ashamed that I learn most of my new history facts from social media. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, I don't take everything I see for face value, and I then actually do research on it. Um, but it's so frustrating that I don't already know a lot of these things. Even with an entire year of college, African-American studies, I'm still missing a lot of information or what I thought happened in our American history is grossly skewed. But I honestly feel that if all of us knew more, knew the bad, the ugly, the gritty details of our past, then we can move towards a more unified country and collectively get rid of systemic racism and the injustices in all aspects of American life. But until we can all fully understand where the social problems minorities face were rooted in, then we'll never be able to all work together to make change for true equality. So with that, I've chosen a history lesson that we can learn from today that was most likely either taught wrong to you in school or wasn't taught at all. But I think this story will also help shed some light on where some of the systemic racism is rooted from and how some history books were changed to support white superiority. You ready? I'm excited. Okay. So the story that I chose is about the United Daughters of Confederacy. Did you learn about them or know who they are? I don't think so. Okay. So I never learned about them in school either. I heard about them once I was an adult, but I didn't learn the deep details surrounding this group. So my husband grew up in Texas and Louisiana. So the history he learned is very different from the history that Mm. I learned. Um, He learned about a lot of Southern history, especially surrounding the Civil War. And I feel like all I learned about was the Spanish missions here in California. (laughs) I'm not a huge, like, 
I don't know a lot about history. I'm into it now. Now mm-hmm. that I'm an adult and now that I see how much history is affecting what we're doing today, I'm really interested in it now. But growing up, I didn't care for history mm-hmm. at all. So I didn't retain any of that information. But really the only thing I got out of history is the missions because we kept visiting all the freaking <laughs> missions here and we kept having to make like projects. projects. Yeah. Yes. And so that's all I know. And Gabe knows like everything. Mm-hmm. So I go to him first. He's also in the military. That's true. He just remembers everything that he learned in like mm-hmm. middle school and high school about history. But his history lesson is drastically different mm-hmm. from mine. So I grew up in California. And like I said, he's in Texas and Louisiana. So it, it was different textbooks, 100%. So I asked my husband if and what he was taught about the United Daughters of Confederacy. And he was taught about them. But he said that his teachers told him They were a very helpful and supportive group in the veteran community after the Civil War and that they made a lot of flags and put up statues to honor the fallen soldiers. So I was correct to think that he was not taught the entire (laughs) truth behind the United Daughters of the Confederacy or UDC for short. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say UDC from now on because it's easier. Um, So let's explore that a little bit more. The UDC was established in 1894 in Nashville, Tennessee, and their stated intention was to, quote, tell of the glorious fight against the greatest odds a nation ever faced, that their hollowed memory should never die. So prior to the actual establishment of the UDC, many associations were created by women throughout the southern states to help the families of soldiers fighting in the Civil War. This included paying for funeral costs of Confederates who died, raising money for the widowed and their children, and creating monuments and memorials to honor the fallen Confederate veterans. Eventually, these associations would join together to create the UDC and continue on with their work on a larger scale to help those in the South affected by the Civil War and even raising money to help during World War I. And that's kind of where the typical history lesson ends regarding the UDC, Most have been taught that these caring and compassionate women wanted to help widows and children who lost their fathers and honor the brave soldiers and carry on their memory and legacy. And there is a reason for that, which we will get into in a little bit. Uh, So when you see it from that point of view, they sound like an honorable group, right? Don't think about that. It's Confederates, but just like, it's it's hard to be like, oh yeah, they're great. But but if you're also fighting for, I know, but there's a reason. That was, we'll get into that. There's a whole reason Mm -hmm. why people still considered them this great group of people. Um, And all of that is exactly what my husband was taught. Everything that I just Mm -hmm. said there. So the UDC has also contributed to erasing the entire story of historical events, falsifying narratives, perpetuating racist ideologies, and making sure these ideologies and false histories are taught to all children living in southern states. That sounds white. (gasps) So let's get into the dark side of the UDC and how their contributions were actually anti-black history. Surprise, surprise. Oh, man. So the UDC believed in pushing the idea of what's called the lost cause for the Civil War, which basically states that the fight that the Confederates put up was heroic, slavery was moral and a good thing, and that the Civil War wasn't even really about slavery. They say it's about states' rights. This lost cause theory helped perpetuate the idea that segregation was actually beneficial for everyone, that the southern slave owners were actually very virtuous, and the northerners were in actuality the aggressive and unfair people. 
they painted the northerners to be awful like very vicious i'm sure they did Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in order to spread this ideology the udc first focused on putting up statues of confederate soldiers and confederate flags but then they furthered their efforts by focusing on indoctrinating the children Not only did they create a group called the Children of the Confederacy, they also wanted to take control of all history books throughout the education system in the South. But systemic racism doesn't exist. And this is why this is important to know so we can understand where systemic racism. They're literally breeding them. So in 1919, the United Confederate Veterans, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, and the Sons of Confederate Veterans teamed up and created the Rutherford Committee. It was named after its most prominent member, Mildred Lewis Rutherford, a leader of the UDC. The purpose of the committee was to make sure that the Lost Cause version of history was included in all history textbooks in the South. Its main members were Rutherford, whose speeches were famous for emphasizing the victimization of the white South by the North. She defended slavery and was continuously praised by the KKK. In one particular speech, she says, The Negro race should give thanks daily that they and their children are not today where their ancestors were before they came into bondage. Was the Negro happy under the institution of slavery? They were the happiest set of people on the face of the globe. Another prominent member of the committee was Julian S. Carr, a former Confederate general who is also famous for a speech he made to a college audience during a Confederate monument dedication where he urged support for white supremacy and said, it was a pleasing duty to horsewhip a Negro wench for allegedly publicly insulting a Southern lady. Allegedly publicly insulting. So (laughs) it's alleged. It's alleged. Yes. And again, this was already after the Civil War ended. So they were already free. And then, quote unquote free. Quote unquote, yeah. And then there's C. Irving Walker, the committee's chair. He was the leader of the Carolina Rifle Club. According to Walker, the purpose of the Rifle Club was to combat, quote, the greatest social crime of all the ages, the sudden emancipation of four million African slaves wholly incapable of freedom. And these were the people in charge of teaching your children history, and they guided the education system in the South for decades. So the committee published a pamphlet and a book to be used to measure how appropriate a history textbook was to be allowed into the school. And the schools adopted this plan. The book described a list of things, ideas, and events that offended the UDC and would not be allowed into a history book. And so a purge began in many southern school districts to get rid of all current textbooks that offended the UDC and the committee, and they started buying more textbooks that offered their lost cause version of history. So national publishers who had been creating the materials for history courses were left to make two versions of all their textbooks, one with all historical facts and the other with the southern ideology with watered-down facts, sugar-coated details, and the Confederates being the underdogs in the end. Many local publishers in the South also authored materials to be included in history curriculum. Many of them were sons of Confederate veterans. So what exactly did these books say? One major factor of what was acceptable according to the Rutherford Committee was how enslaved people were talked about. What was acceptable was to say that enslaved people were happy, treated well, and were basically lucky to be where they were. As an example, in a North Carolina history textbook used into the 1940s, 
written by Daniel Harvey Hill Jr., he wrote, As a rule, the slaves were comfortably clothed, given an abundance of wholesome food, and kindly treated. Occasionally, some bad-hearted master or bad-tempered mistress made the lot of their slaves a hard one. But such cases were not common. These slaves were brought into the colonies fresh from a savage life in Africa and in two or three generations were changed into respectable men and women. This fact shows, better than any words can, how prudently and how wisely they were managed. This was into the 1940s that this book was being used in the curriculum. So that's like our grandparents' generation. Well, my grandpa was born in the 20s. So he definitely was in his era. True. Because he would have been an adult still by the time this was still circulating. So it was our grandparents that were still Mm -hmm. learning this. Another local author, Oscar W. Blacknell, son of a fallen Confederate soldier who was also married to his first cousin, wrote a pamphlet that was used as teaching material in a few states that was endorsed by the UDC. This pamphlet compared Abraham Lincoln to Satan, said that enslaved people were happy on the plantations but were inherently immoral, and condemned Lincoln who, quote, unleashed four million savages in our very midst against our defenseless women and children. Hmm. Soon after publishing this pamphlet, Blacknell murdered his wife and adult daughter and then died by suicide. The UDC continued to distribute this pamphlet to Southern schools, considering it a masterpiece. Other textbooks commonly discussed enslaved life as happy and beneficial for everyone involved because they were fed and sheltered, who otherwise would never be able to survive on their own if free. So basically, the Southerners were doing them a favor and that abolitionists were liars for believing that enslaved people were treated poorly. A high school textbook in Virginia in the late 1950s stated, Slaves did not work so hard as the average free laborer since he did not have to worry about losing his job. In fact, the slave enjoyed what we might call comprehensive social security. Generally speaking, his food was plentiful, his clothing adequate, his cabin warm, his health protected, and his leisure carefree. This is in the 1950s. There were also many pictures in these textbooks depicting black people being treated as regular members of society while they were enslaved. One picture was of a black man and white man smiling and shaking hands, and this was supposed to depict a plantation owner and his slave. There's also pictures of, like, enslaved people coming off of the boat after being captured, and they look awful, and then the next one, it's like they're wearing a suit and tie, and they're happy, and they're, like, laughing amongst friends, and that's them being enslaved. Mm -hmm. So it was this really bad contrast of what things actually were. And when publishers tried to sell their books to Southern schools that went against UDC standards, the UDC would launch vicious campaigns against the books, often getting politicians and Board of Education officials involved and would basically force the publisher to change their history books unless they wanted to be blacklisted and banned. They were ruthless. Okay. They still are today. (laughs) I just want to say they are still around they do still exist they do still have a website that you can look at and currently they are launching a lot of campaigns suing different cities states because of the monuments that are now being taken down so that's their current agenda Mm -hmm. teachers coming from the northern states were also often banned or discouraged from moving to the south to teach 
So the Rutherford Committee and the UDC did everything in their power to avoid any information showing the South in any negative light being taught in their side of their country. This included anything that went against their idea of the white American being the superior race and against segregation. The Reconstruction period was definitely one of the hardest periods of time for the Confederate enthusiasts to accept and contributed to the rise of the Jim Crow era. And then we have the gem that is the book glorifying the KKK to be distributed among school-aged children. In 1914, a UDC member, Laura Martin Rose, published The Ku Klux Klan or Invisible Empire. So when I found this 116-page book, I initially wanted to just read the first couple pages to get a quote out of it to use for this episode. But the second I started reading it, I couldn't stop reading it. (laughs) And I read the entire thing. (laughs) It was so ridiculous. And I I could not understand how someone would believe it, would believe it, would write this. And to be knowingly, she wrote it as a book for children. Um, And it was both comical and extremely infuriating at the exact same time. So I encourage everyone to find this online and read it in its entirety It's absolutely awful, and we have to understand what was being taught in Southern schools for so many years. So look it up. It's it's under archive.org, but if you Google that title, the Ku Klux Klan, comma, then Visible Empire, um, it should come up. So this book is basically an open love letter to the KKK. Rose opened the book by describing how the Civil War left the South in complete ruins. She said that the states were all of a sudden lawless, crops were no longer growing, people were (laughs) left to fend for themselves, and basically described like an apocalyptic type thing. Because no one was doing their work to tend to their fields is why there was no crops. (laughs) So she continued with saying that freed black men were all of a sudden taking power that they were not qualified for, and that the evil and vile northerners who supported this were American traitors, and any whites who agreed with integration were homemade Yankees, undesirables, carpetbaggers, and scalawags. Which, I thought scalawag was something pirates said. I thought so too. It's not. apparent. I mean, I guess pirates do say it too. But this, I looked it up because I was like, carpetbagger and scalawag, what yeah. the heck? So I looked it up and they're slurs, like it's mm. it's slander, um, usually used for black people and white people who supported the freedom of black people. The book went on to say that in their most desperate time, a hero arose out of necessity to protect the true Americans and protect the white human race from distinction. And that was the Ku Klux Klan. Rose described the KKK as strong and heroic men who brought law back to the land and saved the Southerners from destruction. Okay, so after I read this book, I was completely livid. (laughs) And I told my husband, I was like, oh my God, this lady is, it sounds like she's in bed with the KKK. Like she's (laughs) in love with them. And his response to me was, yeah. She was married to one of them. She was probably married to one. (laughs) Like, in all actuality, a lot of the wives Uh of the KKK were also falling into this category of Daughters of Confederacy. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of them were joining the UDC. And he told me, like, the UDC is most likely, you know, I'm sure there was portions of it that's a female version of the KKK. KKK. Yeah. And so, of course, if a lot of them are going to be married to KKK, they're going to... 
talk about them like they're amazing. They're these strong, heroic men. Oh my mm-hmm. God, my husband's so great. So it, it makes sense that this is how it happened, but it doesn't make sense that the school system allowed these people to have so much control I mean, I bet of the a history. Lot of those women were probably in the school on system. On the board too, yeah. So I wanted to include a couple of quotes that I felt kind of summed up the book pretty well. So the first quote says, The Negro considered freedom synonymous with equality, and his greatest ambition was to marry a white wife. Under such conditions, the Negro clothed with all authority and outnumbering the white two to one, open resistance would have meant instant death or being sent to some northern dungeon there to languish and die, leaving loved ones exposed to dangers too terrible to contemplate at the hands of these brutish despots. Under such conditions, there was only one recourse left, to organize a powerful secret order to accomplish what could not be done in the open. So the Confederate soldiers, as members of the Ku Klux Klan and fully equal to any emergency, came again to the rescue and delivered the South from a bondage worse than death. This sounds like science fiction to me. (laughs) Yes. How is this a history book? (laughs) Isn't it crazy? Yeah, it's crazy. Okay. And then, when talking about the KKK keeping black people obedient, they said, quote, The superstition of the Negro is well known, and through this element in his makeup, the Ku Klux gained control. They made the Negroes believe that they were the ghosts of their dead masters, and under the conviction that if they did wrong, spirits from the other world would visit them, the Negroes became very quiet and subdued. And finally, I want to share this quote that was used when defending their violence against black people. Because remember, they were trying to portray themselves as these like really nice and, you know, the Southern gentlemen. And the book was riddled with calling the Southern ladies like the best of the land and, you know, the most respectable women in the country. Did you see the, the white rose in there? I don't remember. Um, so, yeah. So they were trying to portray themselves as like really good people. And the Northerners are supposed to be the one that are like super violent. Yeah. So, of course, they had to create a narrative to Mm -hmm. defend why they were being violent towards black people. So they said, it is true that some Negroes were killed by the Ku Klux, but in every instance, it was because they offered violent resistance. The Ku Klux would visit a Negro who had been guilty of wrongdoing and who had been repeatedly warned to conduct himself in the proper manner. They would carry him out to give him a severe whipping as a punishment and in order to scare him into behaving himself. And the Negro would make an attack on the Ku Klux, who were then forced to kill him in self-defense. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So they can kill him in self-defense, but he can't do anything in self-defense. Oh, absolutely not. For something that he allegedly did or didn't do. Right. Okay. So it went on to say, the truth about it would never be known. And the report would go out that the Ku Klux had murdered a Negro in cold blood. The true facts in the case always being suppressed. Mm. So all those murders, all those lynchings, all of that. Victims. Yeah, it was all self-defense according to the KKK. Mm -hmm. Like, do they hear themselves when they say these things? Or they do, but they really do believe themselves. Like, They really do believe it. You can tell. It's a cult. It's very culty. It is. I mean, it it is is a cult. But like the mentality. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so crazy. It's weird. When, so when I was reading the booklet, I, f- I could feel like the hatred coming out of the words. Mm-hmm. I felt it. It was ugly. It yeah. was so ugly. 
but I couldn't stop reading it because it was just so crazy to me that someone would even write this believing it Mm -hmm. like wholeheartedly and people still do today. Yeah. So these are the books that were given to school children in states like Mississippi, Texas, Louisiana, and Virginia, just to name a few. So is it really a surprise that we have generations now who still don't see the wrong in toting their Confederate flags? They've been taught that they are superior and noble and patriotic, and those against the Confederate flag were vicious and undesirable and traitors, and the KKK were the real heroes in their story who protected fellow Americans. And just so we are on the same page, a federal grand jury labeled the KKK as a terrorist organization group in 1870, over 40 years before this book was even published. The jury's decision was based on the fact that an estimated 20 to 50,000 black people were murdered by the people affiliated with the KKK within the four years leading up to the trial. Also, before anyone tells me, well, this was the early 1900s and that was a long time ago. Things got better after the Civil Rights Act. You're absolutely wrong. All of this is still prevalent to this day. Every single decade saw school textbooks covering this type of information and pushing versions of the lost cause ideology. Many school districts started phasing out these books in the 70s, but many were met with resistance. In the 1980s, Mississippi still used lost cause type textbooks exclusively, and they refused to get rid of them. It took a federal court to order that Mississippi teach the real version of history and not the theory that the Civil War was not about slavery, that enslaved people were happy and treated well, and that the KKK was basically a fraternity that helped everyone. During the court proceedings, Judge Orma Smith asked the committee chair, John Turnipseed, didn't lynchings happen in Mississippi? In which Turnipseed responded, yes, but it was all so long ago. Why dwell on it now? And the judge said, but it's a history book, isn't it? (laughs) Not surprisingly, Mississippi lost that case. Yes. (laughs) But like if they tried inserting something about what happened many, many years ago, they'd be all about it as long as it was what they wanted. Oh, absolutely. Right. But God forbid you put in actual information into these textbooks and it's like, no, 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 no. That's like everyone's already over it. Like there's no need. (laughs) It's fine. It's fine. There's no need for that. Positive (laughs) vibes only, guys. (laughs) You know, it's like, come on. Okay, so let's go on to a more recent case. In 2010, a Republican-controlled Texas Board of Education revised their school curriculum, which removed slavery as a reason for the Civil War, and they removed any mention of the KKK and the Jim Crow era. They also took out the mention of Thomas Jefferson's role in U.S. history because he advocated for the separation of church and state. It wouldn't be until 2018, 2018, guys, that the Texas Board of Education would change the curriculum standards back to the correct version of history. And I'm not sure if this had anything to do with that change, but this was the same year that the San Antonio school went viral for asking students to write the positives of slavery in a worksheet titled The Life of Slaves, A Balanced View. Do you remember that? That was all over the internet. People were pissed because one of the, I don't know if it was one of the kids or one of the parents of the kids posted it online (gasps) and people were mad 
At the, at, originally, they had put the teacher on like Texas. leave, but I think she got her job back. Um, but this was the same year when everything went back to normal. So I don't know if there was a correlation, if, if it was a cause and effect type thing or if it was just, you know, just so happened. Um, but the teacher got that information from the textbook that they were using. So it wasn't just this like one off like that was in the textbooks in this school board in Texas. It is terrifying, though, like all mm-hmm. joking aside, that there are teachers who are willing to teach this. Mm-hmm. Right. Like mm-hmm. if you're a teacher and you want to teach anything, mm-hmm. wouldn't you want to teach facts mm-hmm. and not just some skewed view because you happen to be in a southern state like I don't know. I well, just, that's what they believe, though. They really yeah, believe that I the know. actual facts are not the real facts, that those oh, are the made-up facts. I can't. Because the Northerners are the ones that were lying about enslaved people being treated poorly and that, but like that it was immoral. But in 2010, you're still thinking. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, we're in 2021 right now and people <laughs> still think. But it's so crazy. Like, yeah. It, yeah. I don't understand it. I, I just don't. That That's awful that teachers are so okay with teaching this. And that... Why why the federal government hasn't, I mean, I know checks and balances, but like, it's crazy that there's no one out there like regulating what is Mm -hmm. being taught in these schools. Like that should be something that everyone is being taught the same thing and it should be the actual history of the United States. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's nuts that you can be in LA or Texas or Louisiana and you're learning something completely wrong. Yeah. And then you're going around and spreading that shit. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that was the quick history lesson of the United Daughters of Confederacy and the impact they had on rewriting and whitewashing history in the South and helping perpetuate racist ideologies in children's classrooms in the name of the Confederacy. And I say all this to show, just as one example, the importance of teaching Black history and how important it is for our country to learn. Hassan Jeffries, a history professor, once wrote in a Southern Poverty Law report, quote, Our discomfort with hard history and our fondness for historical fiction also lead us to make bad public policy. We choose to ignore the fact that when slavery ended, white Southerners carried the mindsets of enslavers with them into the post-emancipation period, creating new exploitative labor arrangements such as sharecropping, new disenfranchisement mechanisms, including literacy tests and new discriminatory social systems, namely Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. It took African Americans more than a century to eliminate these legal barriers to equality, but that has not been enough to erase race-based disparities in every aspect of American life, from education and employment to wealth and well-being. Public policies tend to treat this racial inequality as a product of poor personal decision-making rather than acknowledging it is the result of racialized systems and structures that restrict choice and limit opportunity. And that, my friends, is what we call systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And I feel, and we've talked about this already in like our voter suppression Mm -hmm. episodes, like these keep coming up, all of these ideas of the systemic racism. And I, I don't understand why people keep pushing to say that it's not real. Like, I don't know how many more examples you need to be shown before you can accept that it exists and it's something that we need to confront and it's something that we need to deal with. Because to this day, I've had conversations with people that are still telling me, like, once the Civil Rights Act happened, like, it was fine. How? 
I don't know what else to tell people <laughs> who who haven't already accepted this as fact. Is that a lost cause? <laughs> I don't know that it's necessarily a lost cause, but it's definitely because there's so much fact and there's so much evidence proving mm-hmm. that this is true. Mm-hmm. But if that person is just shut down to anything other yeah. than what they believe and what they've been taught, right? it doesn't matter what you tell them and what you show them because in their mind their mind's been made up mm-hmm. so it's going to take someone either who's very patient yeah to like just kind of keep going at it or someone who is open to having conversations even though they have their mind made up mm-hmm. and who are like willing to at least listen to maybe try and like you know get in there but yeah. i mean really like that's kind of <laughs> This is random, but like one of the reasons why I like would want to have children is because I want to like leave people Mm -hmm. behind Mm -hmm. who are different, who who want to know the truth, Mm -hmm. who are accepting of everyone, because I feel like the more we can do that and the more we can like spread the good word. Right. The better, you know, like slowly kind of filter these people out and start changing Mm -hmm. the world little by little. Mm -hmm. And that's really all you can do because some people really are. I mean, I, I think so. Some people are just lost causes. Yeah. All right. So for this episode, I didn't want to just focus on the injustices. I also wanted to celebrate the contributions that black people have made in our society, even with all the adversity. So here's a short random list of black people that we should celebrate. So first we have Bayard Rustin. He was a key figure in the civil rights movement who helped organize the March on Washington. He instigated one of the first freedom rides in 1947 and was one of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s most important advisors. Rustin has often been overlooked because he was an openly gay man at a time when it was considered unacceptable. So he was a huge person behind, you know, the civil rights movement and um, helping Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but he was often overlooked or not given the attention that he deserved because he because was openly he was gay. gay. Mm-hmm. Then we have Louis Latimer, the son of an escaped enslaved father, invented a filament that was used in Thomas Edison's light bulb that oh. extended the life of the bulb and made it more affordable to be used in homes. Thank you. That was pretty cool. Then we have Shirley Chisholm was the first black woman elected to Congress. She represented New York's 12th district from 1969 to 1983. She also became the first woman to run for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination. Mm-hmm. Her campaign slogan was unbought and unbossed. Oh, so cute. Uh, then we have Claudette Colvin was a 15 year old girl in the 1950s in Montgomery, Alabama, when she refused to give up her seat on the bus way before Rosa Parks attempted this. She was the first woman to be detained for her resistance. And she was just a kid. Mm hmm. Bessie Coleman, the first licensed black pilot in the world, had to go to France in 1919 to learn how to fly as everyone in the U.S. refused to train her. Jane Boleyn was the first black woman to attend Yale Law School in 1931. In 1939, she became the first black female judge in the United States. Hmm. Charles Drew was a black physician, surgeon, and medical researcher who worked with a team at Red Cross on groundbreaking discoveries around blood transfusions. 
In World War II, he played a major role in developing the first large-scale blood banks and blood plasma programs. Wow. He even invented a blood mobile to safely transport blood, <laughs> even though this was during a time where blood was segregated. Mm. He eventually resigned from his position with the Red Cross because of this blood segregation policy. Mm-hmm. And this next one is kind of a sad one, but Joe Lagan was the nation's oldest and longest serving juvenile lifer in prison. Mm. In 1953, in Alabama, Lagan was 15 years old when he participated in a robbery that resulted in two deaths, but he was not the triggerman. His race most likely played a role in his sentencing. But 68 years later, he was finally released earlier this month. Wow. Yeah, he was just released. So that's all I have for that. I mean, this list list could go on forever. Mm -hmm. So I I literally just chose random handful ones just to give some shout outs because I didn't want this episode to be completely sad the entire time. But the whole point of Black History Month is not only to learn from our past mistakes, but to celebrate the contributions Mm -hmm that black people have made to our society and continue to make oh yeah stacy abrams thank you yeah love her all right so my amplify corner um i also wanted to celebrate some black owned businesses but the cool part of this is that they're my friends and family oh yeah So in general, I think we should always be hyping up our friends' business and achievements. It's free to give each other a shout out. So let's normalize that a little bit more. But I have three of them that I want to shout out today. Uh, So first is my friend Ryan Wallace, Mm -hmm. and he owns a clothing company called Lonely Floater, which is based out of New York. Ryan is such an inspiration. Um, He's a Navy veteran. He created his business while serving in the military. And now that he's out, he is a college student at SDSU. Um, He already has a few degrees under his belt and Mm -hmm. he's going for his third, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, Ryan is the first person to help out anyone, especially black youth. Uh, He took my little brother under his wing for a bit and helped him out. And his company has donated to nonprofits, and he's very passionate about entrepreneurship. He says that the name for his company was inspired by the harsh reality in which people are individually facing challenges that make them feel alone even when they are surrounded by people. So check out his clothing line at LonelyFloater.com and on social media under the same name. So you've met Ryan Mm -hmm. a couple times, Mm -hmm. I believe. Oh, we were all in Austin together. Yep. So you, we were in the same apartment for a while. Yeah. <laughs> He's very nice. He's very nice. But speaking with him is like nothing, like no other conversation can compare to mm-hmm. the conversations that he has. It's He comes into his conversations with such a good heart and with good intentions, but also like he includes like spirituality and like universe type things it's really interesting to listen to him talk it's really captivating um but to know that he also has the best intentions to help everybody that he comes into contact with Mm -hmm. is amazing um there's been multiple times where and this was pre-pandemic obviously but multiple times where my husband like had a quick question or wanted him to like try one of his foods out or you know something anything random and with the expectation like oh we'll plan it he'll be like I can be there right now. Like mm-hmm. I'll go over right now. And we're like, okay, <laughs> like, that's like, he will drop anything mm. to help anybody. Yeah. So he's a good friend. He's a good businessman. He's a good college student. Um, he's <laughs> definitely a good one to have around. Uh, then we have 
our other friend, Tevin Everett. <laughs> I figured he was next. <laughs> you can't have a list without Tevin. Um, Tevin is also a Navy veteran who deployed with my husband, and he was a groomsman at our wedding. So Tevin got out of the Navy and told us he was moving to L.A. and pursuing his dream to do screenwriting, and he's absolutely killing it. Um, he's now an award-winning indie filmmaker. So right now he has been doing short films and he wrote and directed a series called Diversity Hires, and it represents some of the racial bias and issues that are common in the workplace. So that series can be found on YouTube, and I highly recommend it. He also wrote and directed two short films that can be found on Amazon Prime. One is called The Do Not Call List, and the other is called Short Term. So watch all of them and look out for his work in the future. You can follow him on social media at a Tevin Everett John, and that's Tevin with a T, like Kevin, but with a T. Mm -hmm. And then Everett has two T's at the end, and John is spelled out J-A-W-N. He is also a good one to talk to. <laughs> he can talk to literally anybody Anybody on this planet, he can figure out how to communicate with them and hold a conversation and make you feel like um, he really cares about what you have to say or that he really does want to talk to you. I wish I had that much um, skill mm -hmm. in my communications. I feel like I feel like I'm pretty good at communicating. Nothing compares to <laughs> Tevin. So it really doesn't surprise me that he's doing so well in L.A. right now mm -hmm. because his networking skills, everyone loves him. <laughs> All right. And then finally, I have to give a shout out to my cousin, Taylor. She is my stepdad's great niece, I believe, if I did that family tree correctly. So she's a college student and she just started a little painting business. Um, so she does little artworks. She's a painter. And a lot of her paintings are depicting black culture. And she does do custom pieces as well. Uh, for Christmas, she painted Briella a Hamilton painting that Aww. she she absolutely loves it. It's hanging on her door. It's really good. Um, so support this college student who's going to do great things in her life. Um, and her social media page is at createdby.tayb. That's Tay for Taylor and B as in boy for her last name. So those are some of my friends and family that I'm super proud of. So closing out Black History Month, um, I hope that you continue celebrating Black excellence mm -hmm. and especially those in your life um, support Black businesses, Black activists. And we shouldn't just wait for Black History Month yes. to roll around every every year. Mm -hmm. um, you know, unfortunately, the school system's not doing us any favors and it's not providing the education that it should be providing. Right. So it really does fall on us, like a lot of other things. If you want to be aware of what's going on, if you want to be educated on why things are the way that they are today, mm -hmm. don't wait for it to just come up. Don't wait for it to be taught in the school systems. Don't wait. Just go out there and look for it because the information is out there. Yes. It literally is at our fingertips. I know you joked about it earlier, but Twitter social media, mm -hmm. you know, that really has become a source of education for so many people, yeah. even people who don't have access to higher ed, right? Like mm -hmm. people are still going out there and using Wikipedia or different sources that they find on the internet to become educated people. So just don't wait around. We don't have to wait for Black History Month to continue celebrating and being grateful for everything that the black community has done for this country. 
Absolutely. And that reminds me, there's this social media page that I'm absolutely loving right now. He's this black activist who's he's really funny. He he has this like comedic take to it. Um, but I've actually learned so much from his posts and his reels that he's uh, creating. Mm-hmm. Um, his name is Old Chap Charity. And he's also like he raps, like he does songs about history. And I posted it on our Unjustly podcast social media the other day. Um, one of his reps that he did talking about history and talking about how history has been erasing black history. Um, and so like people like him, I, I highly recommend that you follow them, learn from them. Um, be careful though, <laughs> who you're following, make sure that you're vetting that right. it's an actual person that's going to be talking about things that are truthful and factual. Um, but look him up. He's really good. Also, if you have anyone else that you recommend that we follow, send them our way. We're always looking to learn more. We're always looking to um, m- learn about new activists, meet new people, new cases, new history lessons, everything. So we always like to get recommendations. So send them our way. Are any stories that you want us to tell? Mm-hmm. You know, black history stories or stories of things that have changed the world that were mm-hmm. at the hands of black or colored people. I mean, literally anything. Yeah. Anything you feel that hasn't gotten the light that it deserves or the time that it deserves. Yes. Like we're happy to tell those stories because who else will? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is what it's about, helping the injustices and making wrongs right. So thank you so much for sticking through our Black History Month episode. Um, I do hope that we're able to do more of these when it comes to all the other ethnicities as Mm -hmm. well. So don't forget to follow us on social media, Unjustly Podcast. Um, If you have anything that you want to email us, unjustlypodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate subscribe and review um all of those help a lot so the more um people we can get listening to the episodes the more awareness that we can bring to certain cases and um different history lessons like today the more people that can listen the more beneficial it can be especially for those people that are we're currently trying to help um in their efforts to be free and be exonerated you can always visit our social media page to see updates on those cases and see how you can help out as well so we will see you next week steph is going to bring you an episode that is going to be full circle to a past episode we already did Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, so -hmm. that'll be exciting stay tuned for next week thank you for being here guys Happy Black History Month. Happy Black History Month. Bye. Bye. The Civil War was from emancipation, basically. It's the North against the South. It's a revolution. (laughs) Take that out. No, yeah, of course. (laughs) I can't with these people. I can't. My eyes are going to be rolled behind my head by the time this is over. It gets worse. <laughs> you don't say. Occasionally, some hard-hearted... Hard-hearted. Occasionally, some hard-hearted... That's such a stupid hyphen. Another local author, Oscar W. Blacknell. Black... Blacknell? Blacknell. 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 And then it says, the truth about it would... You got a text asking what you wanted from Sonic. <laughs> oh. <laughs>
So Thanks. if you're hungry. <laughs> if you're hungry and you know it, let me know. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't want you to miss out on food. <laughs> so stupid. This is so stupid. <laughs> so dumb. <laughs> Why do all in the past, you guys? It's literally what history, history is called. <laughs> what, is, what is history? Do you know what history is? It's like as soon as we're done with the story, we're like, okay, bye. <laughs> you know, like there's yeah, no, there, no time, no place for goodbyes. That's it. And if it's not written down, I can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> I just can't. Thank you.